Well, great to be here again, Sunnybank. Glad that you guys are back as well. Uh, we are continuing in Paul's letter through the book of Galatians to the uh, Galatian church he was writing to there. Uh, and Paul's continuing in the passage that we've heard read here in his effort to rescue the, the Galatians from the bad teaching they are receiving from a group that, that gets called a bunch of different things in this letter, the Judaizers, sometimes called the circumcision. Um, the circumcision group because of the way they adhere to the old Jewish principles kind of over and above the way they're adhering to the gospel. Uh, fundamentally, they are the extremely Jewish, over-Jewish Christians uh, that are kind of messing up the way they're presenting the gospel to people, making the Jewish law an obstacle to those entering into uh, the religion of Christianity. They know that Abraham fathered uh, the chosen people. They know that Moses brought the law, that uh, the prophets foretold the coming of the Messiah, that King David, uh, the Jewish king, was destined in his descendants to rule forevermore over Israel and for all time. All of these things happened in this grand uh, singular connected narrative structure uh, and uh, historical structure uh, that you needed to accept as a whole if you were going to participate in it like the Jews did for so many years, for thousands of years. They were children of Abraham uh, and they broke the... Uh, there were children of Abraham, I should say, who broke the law of Moses, who were, who were married into the surrounding nations and they kind of lost their spiritual birthright as a result. They vanished. Uh, God uh, had the Assyrians take like 10 of the tribes of Israel away, and they sort of vanished into history. Uh, and so that's kind of what happens as far as the Jews are concerned if you don't really stick to the Jewish law. Uh, and it wasn't quite as simple as doing a halfway decent job of obeying the law of the Jews if you wanted to be a Jew. You really needed to do the whole process up to and including the circumcision part, which is uh, at the same time a physical marker of belonging to the Jewish family and... Uh, uh, kind of like a, a token blood sacrifice for a man to buy in to the covenant that God was beginning or had begun with Abraham's bloodline. All of this stuff was in Judaism. This is the whole Judaism package, the one big box containing all of those things together. And so it's not entirely crazy that when the Jewish Messiah comes along and he dies and he rises again, he departs to create a place for us at the side of the Father where he sits uh, in the heavens, Many of those Jews still on earth who considered themselves at that point would be Christians, uh, the Jewish Christians, looked around for a place to fit Jesus into this uh, block of teachings and decided, well, he's a Jew, he's a descendant of David. Uh, he said himself he came to fulfill the law and the word of the prophets. Let's put him in the Judaism box. Let's make him part of that, like a subset of Judaism. And so Jesus the Messiah would become a subcategory, a secondary folder inside the greater covenant of Judaism that had already been established for the Jewish people. But the truth was actually much simpler. Jesus was not one of the things that fits inside Judaism. All of those things that came before him came for a purpose of preparing the way for him. Abraham was a childless 75-year-old when God called him, and the reason he had children at all was to make a nation which would know to expect God's promises, including the promise of his Messiah. Uh, David was only a king so that one day there would be a kingdom waiting for Jesus. Moses only gave a law to make, pe make these people distinctly holy among the nations and aware of their sinfulness. Uh, the only reason that circumcision was instituted uh, in this thousands of year old tradition amongst the Jewish people was that it tied every Jewish man, and therefore every Jewish family, uh, to the next uh, of the next generation to the promise that God had made 
then that ordained that the shedding of blood would be the key once and for all to bridging the gap between heaven and earth, between those sinners here and God and his kingdom above. And that is the work of Jesus that is completed when Jesus performs his action on the cross. Uh, Jesus is not part of Judaism. Judaism is the system that God used in the world to prepare uh, the world for the coming of his son. It's subservient to him, not the other way around. And so now his son has come and has gone. And, uh, and, and so at the end of this passage before ours, Paul finished with some exasperation in verses 17 to 20 here in chapter 4. He said, those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. Uh, it is fine to be zealous, providing that the purpose is good. And to be so always, not just when I am with you. Uh, my dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. So Paul is acknowledging the Galatian church's enthusiasm uh, and indeed even the, the enthusiasm of this group, the Judaizers there, but that enthusiasm is aimed wrongly. All it can do is lead people away and it agonizes Paul uh, because he knows the potential of these believers of this church and knows they can be powerful servants of God, but they're currently being led astray down a wrong path. And so Paul launches into this lengthy analogy that takes up the, uh, the entirety of the reading that we had earlier. Uh, it's not just any analogy, it's one of the most confusing analogies in all of Scripture. Uh, one of the hardest ones for us to chew on. So that'll be great. That'll be fun. That's my favorite kind of thing. Uh, he challenges those under the law, those who are championing the Judaic ceremonial ways uh, and thus creating unnecessary barriers for Gentiles to enter the church. He challenges them to consider this comparison. Uh, and because it is a bit confusing, we're going to parse this uh, verses in, uh, in chunks at a time. Verses 21 through 31. In sections, we're going to go through it. And so we don't feel like we've left anything on the table. I don't want anyone to feel like this stuff there we haven't really covered. But as we go, it's worth noting right up front that there are some varied opinions about this passage. Um, lots of different commentaries saying different things. It's about its possible meanings, its secondary references in Scripture. Um, I'm giving you the one that seems plainest to me, that I think is a consensus. And I will tell you why as we go. And part of that understanding is that Paul is not citing the Old Testament here to point to a prophecy. Uh, he's not saying that these Old Testament passages are fulfilled in Jesus' coming um, or in the church's arrival. Uh, he is saying that you understand, uh, Jewish listeners, the relationship between the people and the places and the stories of the Old Covenant. We will take that as a figure to understand what's actually going on here and now. So he's not saying there is a secret code in Scripture to be dug up here that points to this very moment, as much as he's saying what is happening here is a lot like what happened in the Old Testament Scriptures. It's not a supernatural claim, it's a rhetorical one. And so on with verse, through, verse 21 to 23. That's what I'm looking for. Verses 21 to 23 in chapter 4. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. So it's not hard to imagine, uh, or rather it's hard for me not to imagine right now, that Paul is at some level kind of mocking or playing with his opponents. Uh, he's dealing with those who are fanatically devoted to a emphatically Jewish law. 
uh, and the Jewish customs, the Jewish history, so much so that they can't imagine, excuse me, uh, a Messiah that is anything more than just a Jewish Messiah and therefore not the savior of the world altogether, not the savior of the Gentiles. And so you may know the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. God promises Abraham, uh, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, uh, despite being somewhat past it, uh, that they would have a child who would carry with that with him the promises of God into the future. That child was Isaac, uh, Isaac, the father of Israel, therefore one of the most sacred patriarchs in the Jewish canon, the story of God's people. But in that story, uh, before Isaac comes around, Abraham and Sarah, they kind of jump the gun on God's promise. They don't understand his power. Uh, they decide they need to give him a leg up. They need to help him out. And so they essentially, they get Sarah's Egyptian handmaiden or maidservant, uh, whose name is Hagar. They marry her to Abraham to be basically a concubine, which is like a wife without the respect. Um, and so before Isaac is born, Abraham and Hagar have a son called Ishmael. And God corrects them over this. He says, no, 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 no. I said Sarah is going to have this child, not Hagar. And so Sarah's child, like I said, will inherit this promise. So just chill out and wait a minute and this will happen. And when they do chill out and wait a minute, it happens. Uh, and when they do, Isaac is conceived and born. Soon Sarah uh, becomes hostile to Hagar and Ishmael. Uh, in the story, she sees Ishmael mocking uh, the younger Isaac, and decides right there, okay, I'm getting rid of these people. I don't like them anymore. She convinces Abraham to kick them out of the camp into the wilderness where God intervenes to take care of them. Kind of a sad story, Genesis 16, all the way up to like 21. And so then Paul tells uh, the Jewish Judaizers, really the situation we're in is like this. My guys, my side, are like the Jews, the promised people of God. And you guys, you Jewish Judaizers, you are like the non-Jews. Uh, not the promised people of God, but like the product of human efforts trying to help God get to where you think he's meant to be. So the Judaizers are like the non-Jews and the non-Judaizers are like the Jews. This can be why the passage may be confusing uh, because of that kind of crisscross method that uh, Paul is using to attack their arguments here. It's simpler if we sort of uncross our eyes for a second and grasp that, okay, this comparison is not about actually bloodlines or genealogy. It's not really about that. It's about uh, one side built on the promise of faithfulness, uh, the faithfulness of God, and the other side built on the striving of flawed men and women trying to accomplish God's promises by their own strength. It's not a claim to Jewish ancestry or, for that matter, an attack on Hagar, uh, who we see as uh, in the Bible, in the scriptures there. We don't see her doing anything particularly immoral or even mean in scripture. She's quite a victim. Uh, but Hagar's son was born out of an effort of Abraham to fulfill God's promises for him, out of his own strength. Sarah's son, Isaac, was born out of God's actually fulfilling his promise to Abraham and Sarah. It's works versus faith. It's Paul's favorite comparison. So we carry on to verses 24 to 26. Paul says this, These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. And now Hagar stands in for Mount Sinai in Arabia, which corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. Works and faith. Hagar and Sarah. And now Paul adds another pair of, uh, pair of pairs to this figure in comparison. 
uh, slave and free. Because Hagar was a slave in the story, and Sarah was free. Living uh, under the law is slavery to sin, and living in the gospel is a freedom from sin. Slave and free, and so also this locational comparison, one which comes off like Paul uh, almost started with one uh, particular thought and then maybe changed midstream, or perhaps he intended this whole thing as he was writing it. Uh, he says that Hagar stands for Mount Sinai, the place where Moses got the commandments, what you might call the birthplace of the law of Moses, of the Judaism movement, ultimately. Um, he said that Sinai corresponds to the current Jerusalem, which is presently in slavery with her children. Now, Sinai is where the law of Moses began, it's, and Jerusalem is the heart of the promised land where uh, the law would be enshrined in the old temple. So that whole stretch, kind of Sinai to Jerusalem, is like the lifeline, uh, the, the passage of time of, where, uh, of, of the span of God's uh, old covenant. Begins in Sinai, moves up to Jerusalem, and that's kind of, I guess, the figure of where it occupies in the world. Uh, he says that Hagar stands for Mount Sinai, the place where Moses got the commandments. Uh, and he says that uh, this corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. Now, uh, Paul also says that Jerusalem is in this time in slavery. Uh, well, there's a sense in which Jerusalem is enslaved. It's occupied by the Romans, right? We know that. Uh, but we can see that Paul is really just personifying Jerusalem here. He's making Jerusalem into the figure of a mother uh, over the children uh, the, to whom Jerusalem, uh, well, to whom Jerusalem is the mother to whom these children belong. Sorry, got that back to front. Uh, he's putting together this dramatic image of a covenant or a pair of covenants with a mother for each of them. And because the nature of that covenant is the old law, uh, then Hagar and the children of that covenant are born slaves. Uh, Jerusalem operates under that covenant. Jerusalem and all its children are slaves. Slaves to the sin that the law was intended to illuminate for them and to give them hope to wait to be saved from by the Savior that God would send. Old covenant, Hagar, Sinai, Jerusalem, law, slavery, sin. That's one side of this analogy. That's the old system under which the people Paul is warning about, the Judaizers are trying to build the new church underneath and sort of within that structure. But the other half of the example is Sarah. Sarah is a woman born free. She uh, and her children, in this case, or figured in Isaac, but her children, those under this new promise, uh, are children of promise. They're the beloved children of God and Jerusalem, to which she corresponds. The new Jerusalem has never existed because in this example, she represents a new covenant in which all sin is forgiven, in which all the children are free people. They are set free from the bonds of sin. Uh, the completion of this new covenant comes in a new world in which Jesus will be the king returned someday. The one that he will institute when he returns. Revelation has this grand image of the new Jerusalem descending from the heavens to the earth after the final days. Uh, whether Paul has some insight into that vision, whether he has his own revelation about that, uh, or if this is just him being figurative and projecting forward what he knows to be true from God's promises. The new covenant's ultimate home is the place where heaven and earth finally meet once and for all. It hasn't come yet. It's looked forward to. But what a glorious promise it is. And then Paul draws out a few lines from Isaiah 54. 
For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who have never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more of the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now there's a surprising amount of discussion about this verse because Paul cites it like it's a prophetic verse. In this context, uh, in its context, this is Isaiah prophesying about the future of Israel, about the future of Zion, uh, the home of the Jewish people as a whole, their place among the nations. They're going to go through this intense trial and suffering, um, ultimately because they failed to uphold the covenant of God, something that was definitely fulfilled in the exile. Uh, but then Isaiah's messages of hope take heart because ultimately God will restore his people to their true glory. And the little remnant of God's people uh, who thought that they might have no future at all, what is described in this passage as the desolate woman, the barren woman who has no children, this kind of uh, very suffering, pathetic figure that Israel will become, the one who should have no hope at all, will in fact have a future that is more bright and fruitful than all of her neighbors and competitors, all of those, uh, those women who have husbands in this picture, uh, who have normal lives, who have a regular amount of suffering. Uh, Isaiah's prophecy is saying that after this period of suffering, there's going to be an appearance of abundance that is amazing like the world has never seen. That's the promise of Isaiah. God is good to those who are faithful to his covenant. And so Paul conjures up this picture to rebuke the Judaizers a little bit more. Uh, he says, you think you inherited the blood of Abraham, and because of that, you are God's true and chosen people, and that's it. But in fact, right now, you are more like these other nations, the ones who are looking down on God's people, the barren and destitute Israel, the one with no power, uh, not knowing that it is God's nature and God's favorite thing to do in history, uh, to uplift the broken over the privileged, to make the older servant to the younger, to give the barren woman children of promise, to make a pack of sinners into an army of saints, to make clueless, unschooled, unclean Gentiles into the vanguard of a new covenant, carrying the gospel of the Jewish Messiah to every corner of the world, unhalted for 2,000 years. The first shall be last, the blind will see, the lame will walk, the Son of God will be crucified, the crucified King will rise to life, and having done that, will return someday to reign over all the earth. This inversion is something that God loves to do in history. He loves to humble the exalted and to exalt the humble. Now, this is not a warning explicitly uh, against tradition or Jewishness or a valuing of the law of Moses. This is a warning against arrogance and against elitism and smug religious assumption of which the church has been guilty many times in its history. Paul finishes the passage thus, verses 28 to 31, talking again to the people of the Galatian church he is desperately trying to save from the Judaizers. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of the promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son by the power of the spirit, or born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. For the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but we are children of the free woman. So this is the story as it is depicted in Genesis. Isaac comes of age. Ishmael starts mocking him. Sarah gets very mama bear about the whole situation and has Hagar and Ishmael sent away. It's the completion of Paul's comparison. The church of Jesus Christ are the children of the promise. 
the inheritors of the promise of Abraham. And it's those clinging to the law, those who compromise the power of the message of the gospel in its purity by trying to cram it down into some puritanical traditional box. Those are the ones who are having the failure of wisdom. They mistake the frame for the masterpiece and in doing so, they mislead those who come to behold it. Now, we know that God is the one who moves behind every effort of every Christian to evangelize, to live rightly in the world, to further the gospel in the world. Uh, We know that where he acts, we cannot fail. But we're called to reflect on our own actions and our own stewardship of the gospel. And just as Paul had checked the Galatians here and just as Martin Luther checked the historical church, just as the Baptist church throughout history has uh, checked itself and the church around it, uh, we are called to keep a check on ourselves to make sure that we are presenting the gospel fully and truly without compromising its truths, but also without making it inaccessible to others with a misguided sense of elitism or extra purity. The gospel at its heart is a very simple message. Our loving God sent his son and in his suffering, that son made up the difference between our sinful lives and the heavenly outline of who God would have us be now and forever in his kingdom. We're invited on the basis of our acceptance of Jesus as our Lord and our Savior and nothing else. And nothing else. Everything beyond that is just a guide to facilitate us living more faithful lives, uh, sharing the gospel more clearly. Uh, Traditions give us structure and comfort, but there's a kind of There's a kind of arrogance to clinging to traditions if we develop them and they become that kind of obstacle. If there is a seating arrangement or a preaching style or a worship music kind uh, that is becoming an obstacle to people knowing who Jesus is, that is ultimately becoming an obstacle to the gospel's advancement, we are duty-bound to check that and if necessary to put it away. And just the same with our own lives. If there is something about the way we live the way that we practice our Christianity individually, something that may not in itself be sinful, but could be sinful in the way it ends up putting a barrier between someone who desperately needs to know Jesus and Jesus himself. If such a thing exists, we have to confront it. If there is, then the Holy Spirit is letting you know about it. And if the Holy Spirit is letting you know about it, then you can trust the Holy Spirit to be with you in the process of getting past it. We are children of the promise, and we can let nothing in the way that we live and conduct our faith become an obstacle to those that we are commanded, first and foremost, to bring home to the one who saved them. Let's pray together. Father God, Father, we thank you that you did send your son to save us, that you broke through all the barriers of sin and indeed tradition of worldly nations to reach out that each of us could have an opportunity to grasp your hand and be pulled out of the sinful mess in which we find ourselves. We especially, those of Gentile kingdoms, Lord, uh, who didn't know you historically like your people did, who weren't there to witness the promises of the prophets, but still you've thrown the doors of heaven wide open and called us in. We thank you for that, Lord. And we pray as freely as you have accepted us, let us present your gospel to others. Let us not create any obstacles in the way that we live or conduct our faith that are in opposition 
to the advancement of your gospel. Let us never be able to be vulnerable to the accusation that something we did obscured the truth of who your son is and what he did. May we always help to advance the gospel and never to stall it. Help each of us assess our lives and our faith so that we can serve you most effectively. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, church.